Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about the history of nuclear weapons. A, a world-changing and history-shaping piece of technology. Uh, nuclear weapons have dominated international affairs ever since their invention and, of course, their use uh, during the Second World War. Nukes are terrifying. They are terrifying weapons that are fully capable of ending life on Earth as we know it. Um, and while they've only ever been deployed twice, uh, of course, in, in war, in history... We've had some bloody close calls with them over the years. I mean, long-time listeners will remember episode 52, Get Across It. We've, we've come uncomfortably close to nuclear Armageddon more than once. And even today, the, the looming threat of nuclear weapons adds horrifying weight to the, the Russian rhetoric as the war in, uh, in, in Ukraine continues. So to put it mildly, nukes are a huge deal. It's really, it's very difficult to overstate their importance in international relations and diplomacy and in conflict and warfare because humans, we, we love fighting, right? We, we've been doing it forever um, and, and, you know, we've, we've gotten very good at it. But it wasn't until we invented nuclear weapons that we really developed the capacity for the fighting that we love to do so much. For, for that to actually end civilization altogether. You know, before that, we lined up with sticks or swords or guns and we hit or chopped or shot each other. But broadly speaking, society carried on. But the moment nukes are dropped, well, that's it. I mean, game over. Even a single nuke being dropped these days would probably lead to the catastrophic end of human civilization with the death, of course, of countless millions. Why, you might ask? And, and how do we get to a point where these weapons will not only created in the first place but created in the tens of thousands when a single one can wipe a city off the face of the planet nukes have a, a fascinating history and an even more fascinating impact on international relations as as terrible and as frightening as they are the the impact they have on geopolitical relations and and, and international affairs is is it's really engaging it's actually it's, it's unlike anything that history has ever seen. These things have, you know, I, I know I say this a lot. You know, they've changed the course of history, but nukes really have. Um, but before we begin, I want to thank Alert List. Oh, actually, I don't even know that he is an Alert Listener, to be honest. I don't think he actually listens to this podcast, does he? So I don't even need to thank him. My mate, um, my mate Dennis, Dennis Straniak and I, we were talking about the podcast and talking about topics and that sort of stuff. And he suggested I talk about the history of nukes and so here we are, but he doesn't listen. So, you know, bugger him. Fake fan, doesn't even listen to my hit history podcast, the 96th most, most popular podcast in Australia last year, and he can't even find the time. I know his wife listens, though, so g'day, Nikki. You know, good on you, mate. Thank you for listening to my dumb podcast. But, uh, you know, I suppose Dennis doesn't listen because he's too worried about his podcast, the podcast he puts out every week. Bloody, what's, what's it called? Have a listen to this. It's it's not very good at all. I I, I really wouldn't bother listening to it. Don't don't go and have, you know, anchor.fm slash have a listen to this. Make sure you don't visit that website and listen to that garbage podcast. Anyway, let's get underway here. Whirlwind tour through the history of nukes. Absolutely fascinating to get across. We're going to learn a lot today, so let's go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1898, a lot further back than you might imagine here, if you'll believe it, uh, to Pierre and Marie Curie, who, of course, you remember from episode 142, get across it. Now, the Curies, of course 
were elbow deep in radiation and all the rest of it, quite literally, really. They were, you know, very, very into uh, radiation in more ways than one. Um, And the discovery of radium, which emits radioactivity, is where this story starts. Now, what is radiation? Well, okay, well, before, look... Before we get into all this technical mumbo-jumbo, please forgive me for my limited understanding of nuclear physics. I will do my best, but I am barely a historian, so I've got no chance of being a physicist. I'll try to explain the basic stuff as I understand about things like nuclear fission and fusion and uranium and plutonium isotopes and other stuff like that. But don't expect miracles. All the Wikipedia pages explaining things like nuclear fusion very quickly devolve into arcane mathematical script, and I just kind of gave up on a lot of it. But radioactivity, as I understand it, refers to some how some atoms, unstable atoms, essentially disintegrate uh, as they seek more atomic stability, right? And this disintegration involves, in very basic terms, then them shedding particles and, uh, as a result, emitting energy as, as all sorts of exciting things happen inside the atoms themselves. Uh, neutrons turning into protons, protons turning into neutrons, uh, sometimes protons and neutrons being chucked out of the atom altogether, all sorts of very exciting things, as I say. Again, don't hugely understand this, all the alpha and beta and gamma particles and all the rest of that. But the important thing to take away from here, the important thing to take note of here, is that these unstable atoms, they're full of energy. And perhaps, just perhaps, this energy that they they are emitting as, as, you know, as, as they undergo this radioactive decay, just perhaps this energy could be harnessed. And in the wake of the discovery of radioactivity by the Curies, uh, further research, further investigation into this uh, this new and very exciting area of, of science, it, it continued in, in I was going to say in earnest, and it, it continued not only in earnest, but also by earnest. Ernest Rutherford, thank you very much, uh, <laughs> alongside, <laughs> alongside Frederick Soddy. Uh, they were some of the first people to uh, investigate radioactivity further. Uh, in the early 20th century, they identified some of the processes behind radioactivity. And as I say, this investigation, it continued as the years went on, uh, right through until 1933, where we meet a fellow by the name of Leo Szilard. Now, Szilard is an absolutely toweringly important figure in the history of nuclear weapons, as we'll discover, but someone who I feel is a little overlooked. He was a Hungarian-born Jewish scientist who lived in Germany up until the ascendancy of Hitler and the Nazi party, where he left, you know, as, as Jews there were facing uh, persecution and, and suppression, all sorts of horrible things. He left and fled to Britain. And I'll tell you what, it was the Nazis' bloody loss that he did because this bloke was an absolute genius who thought up the idea of a nuclear chain reaction. And as you may know, a nuclear chain reaction is a very, very important uh, uh, concept uh, in when it comes to nuclear energy. And it was Szilard who first thought up this idea. And I'll, I'll try to explain what a nuclear tra- chain reaction involves. I talked about how radioactivity involves the instability of elements and how sometimes as part of radioactive decay, they fire out particles like neutrons and things. Well, when an unstable atom uh, fires off a neutron and uh, if that neutron hits another unstable atom, it can cause the, unst- the second unstable atom to split or fission to be, to be more accurate here. And when that fission takes place, sometimes further neutrons will be emitted, be thrown out by the atom that is undergoing fission. And if those neutrons go and hit 
more unstable atoms, the process can repeat. As those unstable atoms fission, fly, fling out more pro or more neutrons, I should say, which then go out and hit more atoms, which fling out more neutrons. And as long as an average of one or more neutrons is fired off and hits another particle, which then fissions, you have a chain reaction. These neutrons hit more atoms, which fire off, which split and fire off more neutrons, which hit more atoms, which split. And every time this happens. It's not just neutrons that are emitted, but also energy is released with every step of this chain reaction. You might think, well, atoms are tiny. How much energy could possibly be released with a, with a chain reaction like this? And I'll remind you that we are talking about nuclear weaponry here, so a fair bloody bit of it, to say the least. Now, Szilard's work, it was theoretical, it was speculative, but it was actually rock-solid science, and he managed to take out a patent on the idea of a nuclear chain reaction, which he then prompted, ha promptly handed over to the British Admiralty, so it would be kept highly secret under the Official Secrets Act. But it wasn't just Szilard that was interested in this sort of thing. No, no, no. There, there was research that continued into radioactivity, into alpha particles, into fission, and all sorts of other nuclear physics, leading to the discovery of, of new elements like barium. Barium was discovered by Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann in 1938 as, the, uh, as they fired neutrons at uranium, causing it to split. Uh, Lisa Meitner and Otto Robert Frisch uh, confirmed this through further experiments in 1939, and they called this process, this process of splitting atoms by firing neutrons at them, they called it fission. And this uh, confirmation, this experimental con confirmation by Meitner and Frisch, in turn led to Szilard himself realising that it was uranium that would be able to sustain the theoretical nuclear chain reaction that he'd come up years ago, and more specifically, an isotope of uranium known as uranium-235. This is the only naturally occurring fissile isotope. When you have enough of it, called a critical mass, you can sustain a chain reaction with it, as when it splits, it releases more neutrons than it absorbs, and so if you have enough of it, this will cascade into a, a huge uh, nuclear chain reaction and, of course, release a huge amount of energy. Now, uranium-235 is important, it's I mean, obviously extremely important to nuclear weapons, as you'll discover, as it was a, a key component of the early uh, fission-based weapons that, uh, that were the ones that were first discovered and, and, of course, the ones that were deployed in the Second World War. But it was also, well, it, I should say, is still also a big part of nuclear weaponry today, even as we have moved on and uh, built thermonuclear weapons with fusion-based weapons. Uh, fission and nuclear fission and, and uranium-235 still is a very big part of modern nuclear weapons. And, and this was huge. So when I talk about Szilard having a big impact on the history of nuclear weapons, this discovery of his... It's later confirmation by other scientists and then Szilard himself recognising that it was uranium-235 that would be able to, to, you know, turn this theoretical nuclear chain reaction into an actual reality. You can see that Szilard laid the foundation for all of the technological developments that would go on to generate nuclear power, nuclear energy and, of course, nuclear weapons. And it wasn't long before the idea of using this new technology, harnessing it for the purpose of, of weaponry and weaponization. it wasn't long before that became a, a pretty significant driving force behind the development of, of nuclear technology. Uh, don't forget 
the time period we're in, 1939, the year the Second World War began, the military applications of these new discoveries was very quickly explored. And the very first time it was talked about in terms of weaponization was in a, a patent application that was made by, the, uh, by a team of scientists headed up by Irene and Frederick Joliot-Curie, uh, Irene being none other than the daughter of Marie and Pierre Curie. But many other scientists were also quick to realize that the, the sheer amount of energy involved in nuclear chain reactions could be weaponized. And here is where, thankfully, the years and years of increasingly horrific persecution and suppression of Jewish people by Nazi Germany really turned around and shot the Nazis in the foot. Because the Nazis had chased out many of their best minds, not just Szilard, but Liza Meitner and Otto Robert Frisch, who we've already mentioned, and Erwin Schrödinger of the potentially undead cat, and even Albert Einstein himself, amongst countless others. And people like Otto Robert Frisch and his similarly displaced colleague Rudolf Piles, these these were the ones who first formally wrote a technical explanation of how a nuclear weapon might work. So the Nazis really screwed themselves over here by chasing out the minds who would go on to develop nuclear weapons like this. In forcing so many scientists to flee, the Nazis put themselves a long way behind the Allies in the race to build nukes as those fleeing Nazi persecution very happily lent their talents to their adoptive nations. Which brings us very neatly to the world's very first effort to create nuclear weapons. And it wasn't the Manhattan Project. No, no. It was actually a project with the magnificently boring name of Tube Alloys. And it was a British program, not an American one. It kicked off during the Second World War. And the name Tube Alloys, as boring as it is, was actually chosen very deliberately. It sounded real enough and also boring enough not to be a hugely important code name or anything, but it was a top secret and very important program, the world's first nuclear weapons program. Tube Alloys, uh, this project began in the wake of the Frisch Piles Memorandum, which, as I mentioned, first explored the practical concept of a nuclear bomb. These were the the two blokes who first sat down and said, we can weaponize this. The memorandum, it wasn't just technical. It didn't just talk about how a bomb could be made, you know, the the logistics of it. It also predicted the devastation that such a bomb could cause. You know, it went a long way in describing just how powerful such a weapon would be. And it also foresaw the power, not just of nuclear weapons, but also nuclear deterrence, which is a concept that will come to in due course. Anyway, the British, they worked away on this nuclear program, tube alloys, and by the time we get to 1942, they're not alone because the Soviets have begun their own nuclear weapons program in that year. And uh, the American Manhattan Project also began in 1942, although the US had been working on other nuclear physics and projects and radioactivity for years beforehand, although they never really uh, went, went super overboard with it. The Nazis, on the other hand, Nazi Germany never got close to making nukes. Um, a lot of that had to do with the fact that they chased out so many brilliant scientists before the war began and conscripted plenty of others that remained behind. But their enemies didn't know this. Their enemies, you know, the people fighting the Nazis, the Allies, didn't know just how far behind Nazi Germany was in terms of building nukes. Um, And in fact, it was fear that the Nazis were en route to creating a nuke 
uh, that spurred on particularly American efforts. Uh, the US, they'd been working nuclear technology for a few years, as I say, after the 1939 Einstein-Sillard letter, a letter written by Sillard and signed by Einstein, again, both Jews who fled Nazi persecution. And this letter warned US President Franklin Roosevelt of the threat that nuclear weapons would pose to the US in the hands of Nazi Germany. And, just as Frisch and Pyle had, it also talked about the importance of nuclear deterrence, which again we'll come to in due course. So Roosevelt, he supported nuclear research as early as 1939 after receiving this letter, but it wasn't, it wasn't much of a priority for the United States, I have to say, until around 1941, which of course was when they finally joined the war. And this led to the famous or perhaps infamous uh, Manhattan Project that, as you may know, ultimately made nuclear weapons a reality. Established in 1942, it began in mid-1942, and it had resources thrown at it like there was no tomorrow, which was, I mean, in all honesty, a somewhat legitimate fear for those trying to beat the Nazis to building a nuclear bomb. In 1943, the Manhattan Project actually subsumed tube alloys as Britain just didn't have the resources to maintain a nuclear weapons program at this point during the war. And so the US, after you know more or less merging with the British program, uh, took a firm lead in the race to build a bomb. The Manhattan Project was, of course, led by J. Robert Oppenheimer. You may have heard of him. And it was comprised of some of the best scientific minds on the face of the planet, many of whom, of course, had fled Nazi persecution. It cost billions and billions of dollars over 23 billion US dollars in today's terms, and it was, of course, top, top secret. In fact, most of the 130,000 people that worked as part of the Manhattan Project had no idea what they were working on. They were working in factories or in in production facilities or or what have you across the United States, and all of the work was highly isolated, and it was all on a need-to-know basis, and most of these workers didn't need to know that the Americans were working on this this, this world-changing superweapon. And so as a result, the highly compartmentalized nature of the proje- of the Manhattan Project meant that for the most part, the left hand didn't know what the right was doing. And it was only a very select group of, of, of individual scientists at the top, as well as obviously the, the politicians and, and the military leaders in charge, who actually knew what the Manhattan Project was attempting to achieve. And what was it attempting to achieve? It was working on the creation of two different types of nuclear bombs, one based on uranium-235 and another on plutonium-239. Let's talk about these two bomb types because they both operate a little differently from each other and they were both very important stepping stones on the path to developing you know, increasingly powerful and, and increasingly terrifying nuclear weapons like the ones that we have today. So, we've already talked about the core concept behind a nuclear weapon. With enough fissile material, you can trigger a chain reaction that releases a colossal amount of energy very quickly indeed. And an amount of fissile material that can sustain uh, such a chain reaction is known as a critical mass. But of course, you need a way to trigger the chain reaction all in one go. With uranium-235, triggering this is simple enough. You get two bits of uranium-235 that when combined would be enough for a critical mass. Uh, These two subcritical pieces are put in a tube. And then, this is honestly how it works, one of the pieces is shot into the other like a gun. This creates a critical mass as the two subcritical pieces come together and form that mass. The chain reaction begins. It releases that colossal amount of energy I mentioned, which is a fancy way to say that it causes a nuclear explosion. This type of weapon, you won't be surprised to learn, is called a gun-type fission weapon. For obvious reasons, it shoots a chunk of fissile material at another chunk like a gun. But it doesn't work very well with plutonium. 
it works fine with uranium-235. You can get two chunks of uranium that are subcritical, blast one of them into the other, and you've got an atomic bomb easy peasy. But with plutonium, it's a little different. When you put two bits of subcritical plutonium-239 into a tube and you shoot one at the other, the chain reaction actually starts too early, the tiniest fraction of a second before the two subcritical pieces have a chance to go critical. So this does still technically create an explosion, and technically it is still a nuclear explosion, but it is, you know, not one that would be large enough to flatten a city. So, you know, boring. We've already got TNT for that sort of thing. So in order to make a plutonium bomb, you need a different method. And the Manhattan Project came up with what's known as the implosion assembly method. This one is a little more complicated. What you have to do is you put a subcritical amount of plutonium into the middle of a sphere. You then fill the rest of the sphere with conventional explosives, which are all arranged uh, very carefully, very precisely, in order to de- deliver a uniform explosive charge to this sphere of plutonium in the, in, in the middle of them. And then you detonate the conventional explosive. The, the explosion compresses the plutonium inside the sphere. And as part of this compression, the plutonium goes critical. It forms a critical mass, which triggers a chain reaction, and boom, in a very literal sense, you now have a nuclear explosion. By by, by mid-1945, the Manhattan Project had progressed to the point that the US was ready to test the world's very first nuclear weapon, a plutonium bomb. They were very confident with the design of the uranium bomb. The, 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 uh, the gun-type fission weapon was one that they were very, very confident would work without any, uh, any issues. But the very delicate and, uh, and precise nature of a correctly built plutonium bomb required some testing. They were worried about this implosion assembly method uh, that it would fizzle and the, the, the chain reaction would begin too early and the explosion wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be the you know of the size desired or indeed the size that a plutonium bomb would be capable of and so as a result the us staged the world's first ever nuclear weapons test it uh, this test was codenamed trinity it took place on the 16th of july 1945 in the desert of new mexico and the test was as you probably know a resounding success this bomb exploded with the force of 25 kilotons of TNT, creating a mushroom cloud over 10 kilometers in height, with the shockwave felt over 150 kilometers away. The US military had to come up with a cover story is because civilians who were driving down the desert highways 150 kilometers away felt the shockwave. They saw the light. And so a cover story about a munitions shed blowing up was, uh, was used to cover the Trinity test. Which was, as I say, a total success. Oppenheimer is often famously quoted as having himself quoted a line from, from a Hindu holy book, book the, uh, the Bhagavad Gita. He's said to have uh, said, Now I am become death, destroyer of worlds. But actually, he didn't say that at the Trinity test site or even for years afterwards. He didn't quote it till years later when, when actually talking about the test. Um, the best quotation to come from the Trinity test itself was made by a different scientist named Kenneth Bainbridge, who was the director of the Trinity test, who after the explosion turned to Oppenheimer and said, now we're all sons of bitches. 
News of this successful test was sped on to US President Harry Truman, who was in Germany for the Allied Potsdam Conference after Germany's surrender earlier in May of 1945. And the Potsdam Conference led to the Potsdam Declaration on the 26th of July, in which Japan, who had not yet surrendered, was threatened with prompt and utter destruction if they didn't offer an unconditional surrender. Now, nuclear weapons weren't specifically mentioned in the Potsdam Declaration, but Truman and the Allies made this, well, they, they issued this ultimatum to Japan knowing that they could indeed back up the threat that they were making. And so we enter now into a, a tragic, a horrific, and a very difficult part of the story of nuclear weapons, the only time that they have ever been offensively deployed in war. As you probably know, Japan did not surrender after the Potsdam Declaration. They, they firmly ignored the ultimatum that was issued to them. And so the decision was made by Truman to use nuclear weapons against them. This decision remains an extremely controversial one. To this, to this day, there are arguments both for and against using nuclear weapons in this situation. Historians are still enormously divided over whether the use of nuclear bombs against Japan actually expedited or even brought about an Allied victory in the Pacific. And as there are reams and reams devoted to this argument, you are free to peruse them at your leisure, whatever the justifications, however right or wrong it was, the US did in fact drop two nuclear bombs on Japan. On the 6th of August in 1945, a uranium-based bomb nicknamed Little Boy was dropped on the Japanese city of Hiroshima, and three days later, a plutonium bomb nicknamed Fat Man was dropped on Nagasaki. Together, these blasts killed over 100,000 people, and perhaps even over 200,000 people, most of whom were civilians. And many of those who didn't die in the explosions died later of radiation sickness and, and cancer. It was a horrific, a terrible loss of human life in an instant, as two cities were blown to smithereens by the might of atomic power. Shortly after these bombings, Japan surrendered unconditionally on the 15th of August. The surrender was signed on the, on the 2nd of September, and that brought the Second World War to an end. But it was not the end of nuclear weapons. It really was actually just the beginning as humankind entered the atomic age and everything that came with it. And of course, the principal thing that came with it, the principal thing that dominated the post-war international political landscape, was the Cold War an ideological conflict between the US and, and Soviet Russia, between West and East, between capitalism and communism. And a huge part, a truly huge part of this conflict was nuclear. Even if no more bombs were dropped, these nations' nuclear arsenals and the threat of their use was the centrepiece of the Cold War. And obviously the Cold War is a, a, a complex and very deep topic, but I really think that at its core, the Cold War, it was ideological, it was technological, and in some cases proxy wars broke out and so it was military. But at its core, the Cold War was a nuclear conflict that was about the nuclear supremacy of either the United States or the USSR. The Soviets began their own nuclear program back in 1942, as I mentioned, the same year that the, uh, that the Americans did. 
But it wasn't until 1949 that they detonated their first nuclear weapon, known as RDS-1. It was an implosion bomb made with plutonium, and it was based on designs that had been pilfered by Soviet spies within the US nuclear weapons program. And it detonated with roughly the same amount of force as the Trinity test undertaken by the United States all those years ago. But what's really important about the the RDS-1 nuclear test undertaken by the Soviets is that it marked the beginning of a nuclear arms race between the US and the USSR that, as I say, would go on to become the principal driving force behind the Cold War. And this arms race, it didn't just involve stockpiling nuclear weapons, although that was a very big part of it. A lot of it was about who could assemble the most nukes. It also involved building better nukes, more powerful, more destructive nukes. You might have heard of thermonuclear bombs, also known as hydrogen bombs or H-bombs. These bombs use a slightly different design to the one that we've been talking about. They're known as staged thermonuclear weapons, and they involve more than just fission. They operate in stages, hence the name using a fissile chain reaction like the ones we've talked about to then detonate a nuclear fusion reaction, which releases a lot more energy than nuclear fission. In fact, hundreds and hundreds of times the amount of energy. Now, listen, I tried. I re- like you've got to believe me. I really did. I tried reading about nuclear fusion. I it is just so unbelievably complicated. I I just didn't. I don't really beyond beyond the very basic principles of it. I don't really get it. But I can tell you what those basic principles are. Uh, two atoms, or more specifically, their nuclei, fuse together and create new atoms, releasing a bunch of energy as they do. Um, and if you would like to understand exactly how much energy can be released as part of a, a, a fusion reaction, look up. Unless, I, I, all right, fine. I, unless, I, I, unless you're inside, in which case, look out a window. And all right, fine. If it's cloudy, I'll just, I'm talking about stars, all right? It's, it's very obvious. I'm talking about stars. The sun, our beloved celestial overlord, bringer of heat and light. It is a main sequence star like so many of the millions and billions of stars that light up our night sky. And these stars are all essentially fusion reactors. The, they, they use fusion to build hydrogen into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. And Given that the sun is almost 150 million kilometers away from Earth and can still produce heat that we find uncomfortably warm, you should have, well, a pretty good understanding now of the power of nuclear fusion. And this is what a thermonuclear bomb uses. It uses fission to ignite a fusion reaction, producing a stupid stupendous amount of energy, far, far more than previous nuclear weapons. Truman wanted an arsenal of these hydrogen bombs after the successful Soviet nuclear test in 1949, and so he ordered US scientists to get to work on it. However, many scientists were dead against working on a weapon of such power, arguing that it could only ever be used on a civilian population given its destructive power. It was too big to use as part of a surgical military strike on a a legitimate military target, the only thing that a thermonuclear weapon could be used for, really, was to flatten a city. And many scientists objected to working on making these fantastically destructive superweapons. 
But other scientists saw it from a different perspective. They saw the need for thermonuclear weapons, for these absurdly powerful hydrogen bombs, because they argued that it was essential that the US build them, because the Soviets were sure to, and it was critical for the US to have them as a form of nuclear deterrence. And we've mentioned deterrence a couple of times here, so let's actually get into what it means and understand why nuclear deterrence was such a huge part of Cold War hostilities and remains very relevant in today's political landscape. If I have nukes, and you don't, and if I want to nuke you, there's not really much you can do, right? Even if you have conventional weapons, they pale in comparison to the destructive capability of even a single nuclear weapon, which, as I say, can wipe out a city. However, if I have nukes and you also have nukes, if I want to nuke you, then I'll probably have to face a retaliatory strike. And so in nuking one of your cities, I'll probably lose one of mine to your payback nuke and millions and millions of lives will be lost on both sides. Unless I'm able to gain what's called a first strike capability, the, the capability to destroy your, your entire nuclear arsenal in one go, you'll just nuke me straight back. So nuclear deterrence is the idea that if one power has nukes, the only way to defend yourself from them is to have nukes yourself to deter them from using theirs against you. If both sides have nukes, neither are incentivized to use them as they run the risk of being nuked themselves in return. And because nuclear weapons are so immensely destructive and because both sides have so many, any nuclear exchange would be likely to escalate to unthinkable lengths very swiftly indeed. I nuke you, you nuke me back in retaliation, I nuke you back again and again and again, so on and so forth. Or I just send all of my nukes in what I hope is a successful nuclear first strike, but because you're sensible and you made sure that you had second strike capability, we'll come to that in a little bit, you nuke me straight back until the Earth is a smoking radioactive wasteland. You've probably heard of the concept of mutual assured destruction, sometimes called the MAD doctrine or MAD doctrine. It's the idea that if a nuclear power were ever to launch a full-scale nuclear attack at another nuclear power, they would assure the mutual destruction of both sides. It is essentially the idea that you will take the other person down with you and nuclear deterrence is at its core. It, it leads to this weird situation where neither side is incentivized to either use nuclear weapons or give them up. Because if you use them, then you assure your own destruction as you get nuked back. But if you disarm you leave yourself vulnerable to an attack from the other side that you can't then retaliate to. And this, very simply put, is the main source of the fuel for all the tension between the US and the Soviets during the Cold War. Nuclear weapons, deterrence, and mutual assured destruction. And what did it lead to? Well, as I said, the development and the stockpiling of ever more powerful nuclear weapons. In 1952, the United States tested the world's first thermonuclear weapon, a hydrogen bomb in the Marshall Islands in the Pacific. This bomb, which was nicknamed Ivy Mike, was detonated on the 1st of November 1942, and it was 500 times more powerful than the bomb dropped on Nagasaki. It had a yield of 10.4 megatons of TNT. And remember, Trinity, by way of comparison, was 25 
kilotons. Ivy Mike created a mushroom cloud over 40 kilometers high. This cloud had a diameter of 161 kilometers, and the bomb also completely destroyed the small island on which the test had been held. it, It turned it into an undersea crater that you can still see today. Just search for Ilugalab Island. And the next year, the very next year, the Soviets detonated their first thermonuclear weapon, RDS-6, on the 12th of August 1953 in modern-day Kazakhstan. Now, it wasn't quite as big as Ivy Mike with a yield of only 400 kilotons of TNT, but it demonstrated that the USSR was well and truly in this arms race, and neither side wanted to back down, of course. And yes, I before you email me, yes, I know that RDS-6 wasn't technically a proper hydrogen bomb, but the fact of the matter is that people didn't really care back then, and they don't really care today. It was a huge bomb with a massive yield, and it properly demonstrated that the Cold War arms race was off and away. As a result of the growing number of nuclear weapons as both the US and the USSR fought for nuclear supremacy, and thanks to the undeniable power of these bombs, nuclear weapons utterly dominated international affairs throughout the 1950s and into the 1960s. And it wasn't just the Americans and the Soviets either. The Cold War was in many ways a a global ideological conflict, and quite aside from that, these bombs were big enough that even a limited nuclear exchange between the Americans and the Russians would have devastating consequences for the entire world, not just the two countries that were at war. Other nations developed and tested their own nukes during this time as well. The UK conducted their first nuclear tests in Australia in 1952. France detonated its first nuclear bomb in 1960 in the Sahara. And China followed suit in 1964, testing a bomb at Lop Nor in Xinjiang province. But even with other nuclear-capable nations joining the fray, the US and the Soviet Union dominated international affairs and international nuclear developments. In 1961, the USSR detonated the largest nuclear weapon that history has ever seen, before or since, a weapon known as Tsar Bomber. It was a 100 megaton weapon that was so powerful that even if you were standing 100 kilometers away from it, you still would have suffered third degree burns. This bomb was completely unfit for any kind of military application. It was so big that it, it wouldn't have been able to, you know, be deployed to anywhere that you might actually want to blow up. But it was a colossal show of force from the Soviets in the pissing contest that was the nuclear arms arms race. And it was another escalation of this arms race on top of that. But perhaps the closest the world came to all-out nuclear war was the escalation that took place in 1963 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. This might actually be worth an episode in its own right, I think, but we'll cover it here quickly. Both the US and the USSR not only wanted to make these nukes that we've been talking about, but also situate them in places where they could be used against the other. So the US spread its nuclear weapons mounted on ballistic missiles for delivery throughout friendly territory in Europe and Turkey so it could target the USSR. While the USSR sought to return the favour by attempting to deploy nuclear missiles to Cuba from where they could be fired at cities on the American East Coast. The US attempted a blockade of Cuba to prevent it from receiving these nukes and tensions between the two nations mounted as both refused to back down. The US demanded uh, the end to all plans to arm Cuba with nuclear, nuclear missiles, while the USSR demanded the US withdraw its nukes from places like Turkey. And as this tension ratcheted up and as this crisis unfolded, the world teetered on the edge of a third world war as these two 
nuclear-capable nations engaged in terrifying brinksmanship. But eventually, a last-minute compromise was reached, the missiles in both Turkey and Cuba were pulled out, and the world breathed a sigh of relief. But after the Cuban Missile Crisis, limits were put on nuclear tests. These limits were agreed upon by both sides. Both nations had used nuclear tests as a sort of pissing contest, showing off their latest and greatest nuclear technology. But a new ban on atmospheric tests meant all nuclear tests now took place underground. As part of this agreement, testing nukes underwater and in space was also banned. And I'm not joking when I tell you that at least some part of the space race was heavily motivated by the Americans wanting to prove their nuclear supremacy. A lot of the research that went into the space race involved rocketry and the very precise delivery of important payloads to specific locations. And so you can see the military applications of that sort of technology when attempting to you know, deliver a nuclear warhead halfway across the world. But it didn't stop there. This is not a joke. This was actually something that the Americans considered in the 60s. And for those of you who know some of the harebrained schemes of the Americans during the 1960s, perhaps it won't come as a surprise to you. But as part of their efforts to prove their nuclear superiority over the Soviets, the United States considered nuking the moon. That is not a joke. They considered sending a nuclear bomb to the moon and detonating it to prove they could and, and again, escalate this arms race further than ever before. I'm very glad it didn't happen. Nuclear tensions relaxed a little bit as we move now into the 1970s. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was signed in 1968. It sought to support further nuclear disarmament, although it didn't always work too well. In 1974, a new nation joined the Nuclear Capable Club as India conducted its first nuclear test, followed then by South Africa in 1979, although that test was never officially confirmed. However, in 1979 and into the 1980s, tensions mounted once again between the US and the USSR, and it was in 1986 that the global stockpiles of nuclear weapons reached its peak. Over 70,000 nukes were in existence in 1986 across the world. And you might think, why? Why would you possibly need so many nuclear weapons when just a handful would be enough to end civilization as we know it? Why stockpile so many? And yes, there's all the stuff about the arms race and the pissing contest and all the rest of it that you know so closely entwined with uh, with uh, with Cold War politics. But there is actually an important and and, and sound bit of military and strategic thinking behind having such an enormous nuclear arsenal that goes a lot further than a pissing contest. And it comes back to this idea of deterrence, mutual assured destruction, and more specifically, a very important part of nuclear politics, the nuclear triad. I've talked about the idea of first strike capability, launching a nuclear attack of sufficient magnitude that you wipe out your, your enemy's capacity to respond. A nation having first strike nuclear capability effectively makes all of its enemies' nukes redundant. If you can launch a nuclear strike that 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 completely neutralizes your opponent's nuclear arsenal, they may as well not have had them in the first place. And so an element that was essential in ensuring that you weren't wiped out by by an opposing nuclear power's first strike was a thing called second strike capability. 
second strike capability is the capacity to essentially return fire no matter what, no matter how bad a nuclear attack is by any enemy, you have the capacity to return with your own nuclear attack that would again follow the doctrine of mutual, mutual assured destruction, make sure that you took them down with you. Again, a key part of nuclear deterrence. And so throughout the Cold War, the Americans and the Soviets, they sought for ways to ensure that they had second strike capabilities no matter what. Initially, the only way to deploy a nuclear weapon over any great distance was in a long-range bomber plane. But bombers were unreliable. They could be intercepted. They could be shot down. They're not as reliable as, for example, a missile with a nuclear warhead attached to it. Nuclear missiles, whether they're cruise missiles or intercontinental ballistic missiles with a range of thousands and thousands of kilometres, they can travel vast distances. They're very accurate and they're very difficult to intercept once they're fired. But they've got downsides as well. They are very final. They can't be recalled when deployed, perhaps by accident. And they're often launched from dedicated fixed facilities, facilities that when your enemies learn the location of, can be targeted as part of a nuclear first strike to take them out of commission. So how might you create facilities to launch nuclear weapons that aren't fixed, that aren't targetable, and will make your nuclear second strike capability more or less ironclad? To ensure second strike capability and therefore to uphold successful nuclear deterrence, the US and the USSR, and in their wake many other nations, establish what is known as a nuclear triad. And a nuclear triad involves having nuclear weapons that are land-based missiles that are launched out of, uh, out of silos, air-based bombs that can be dropped from long-range planes, and sea-based, having nukes ready in any eventuality for a second strike, and it is sea-based ballistic missiles that are of critical importance in the nuclear triad. In addition to the long-range bombers and the ground-based missile launch facilities, submarines armed with nuclear weapons round out the nuclear triad. Even if a nuclear first strike wiped out every single nuclear-capable bomber and every single nuclear missile launch facility, nuclear subs hidden deep beneath the waves of, of who knows what part of the world's oceans could surface and launch a second strike against the enemy. Hence, the sheer number of nukes made by, mo by both the Americans and the Russians, this is what, what brought us to talk about the nuclear triad to begin with, the, the sheer number of nukes was designed to guarantee second strike capability. Whether that second strike came from the air, from the ground, or from the water, it was seen as very necessary for a nuclear weapon stockpile to be that large in order to uphold nuclear deterrence. Thankfully, there aren't quite so many nukes around these days. Even with more nuclear-capable nations since the 1980s, the number of nukes around the world has, has, has fallen steadily. Throughout the Cold War, there were various disarmament conferences and treaties, such as the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks and the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaties, which had mixed amounts of success. But broadly, as the Cold War wound down as we head into the 1990s, both the US and the USSR disarmed considerably. This was due to these continued nuclear disarmament talks and treaties, it was due to public anti-nuclear sentiment, and perhaps most importantly, it was due to the sheer cost of maintaining nuclear weapons programs. 
To give you an idea of how much money nukes were costing the US and the USSR, the US was spending between a quarter and a third of its total defense budget on nuclear weapons alone each year during the Cold War. Trillions and trillions of dollars. The Soviets, meanwhile, they hamstrung their own economy with military spending, which wasn't helped in the 80s with the fall in global oil prices, meaning that they couldn't sustain a huge nuclear arsenal, or as it turns out, themselves by 1991 when the USSR collapsed. So nuclear stockpiles were reduced and they weren't replenished. And today, there are less than 4,000 active nuclear warheads worldwide with another 10,000 or so inactive warheads. Now, of course, this is still more than enough to wipe us all out, but it is nowhere near the 70,000 that were around in 1986. Nuclear disarmament movements picked up more and more momentum towards the end of the Cold War and the number of nukes worldwide has decreased ever since. Even if the number of nuclear-capable nations has increased, Israel's highly secretive nuclear weapons program means that Israel probably became a nuclear state in the 1980s, although even today they maintain a policy of deliberate ambiguity about their nuclear capabilities. They don't confirm or deny whether they have nukes. Pakistan tested their first nukes in 1998, and North Korea did the same in 2006, meaning that there are eight confirmed nations with nuclear weapons capabilities – The US, Russia, China, the UK, France, India, Pakistan, and North Korea, plus one that likes to be a bit coy about it, Israel. South Africa also had nukes during the 1980s and into the 90s before getting rid of them, and very briefly after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, Kazakhstan, Belarus, Lithuania, and Ukraine all had nukes, although they returned them to Russia. But those are the only nations in human history that have or have had nuclear weapons, in fact, many parts of the world have, have, have agreed to swear off nuclear weapons completely the, in places like Latin America, Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, Oceania. These regions have agreed to forswear the possession or use of nuclear weapons altogether. And, and some nations have incredibly strict nuclear bans. For example, New Zealand, whose ban on, on nuclear power of any kind is so, so ironclad that they won't even allow American nuclear submarines to park in their harbours. We don't live in constant fear of nuclear Armageddon these days, like people did during the 1960s. And, And nuclear tensions aren't as high as they once were when stockpiles were overflowing like in the 1980s. But every now and again, a reminder of the nuclear capabilities of various powers will resurface. I mean, I remember North Korea's nuclear testing in 2006 and all of the international anxiety that came with it. And even today, in 2022, the spectre of nuclear weapons hangs over any international conflict. For example, all of Russia's veiled threats backed up as they are by nukes while they attack Ukraine, warning nations to stay out of it or face, quote, consequences greater than any you have faced in history. A terrifying threat to be made by a nation with a very well-stocked nuclear arsenal. The fact of the matter is that while they aren't at the absolute forefront of geopolitical affairs like they once were, nuclear deterrence, the mad doctrine, nuclear triads, and all these concepts that defined the back half of the 20th century, they haven't really gone away. The grim and terrifying reality is this. Civilization could end in minutes if any two nuclear nations were to unleash even a small amount of their arsenals against each other. 
The sheer destructive force that these weapons are capable of, it's unthinkable. A single nuke is able to kill millions by turning an entire city into a radioactive ruin. And as we've talked about, it's very unlikely to only ever be one single nuke. As Second Strike capabilities are more or less hardwired into every nuclear nation's armaments. Perhaps we're lucky to have gotten this far, really, considering how idiotic humans can be and how the Cold War demonstrated what happens to powerful leaders when they get into pissing contests. Perhaps the world is living on borrowed time since the invention of nuclear weapons. But perhaps, if we're lucky, we'll continue to disarm ourselves, rid ourselves of the nukes that we've built, until we can do away with the mad doctrine and the need for nuclear deterrence altogether. It's a long shot, sure, but it reminds me of the very famous quote from the 1983 techno-thriller War Games. A strange game, the only winning move is not to play. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is a... A brief, I was going to say a brief history of nuclear weapons, but this episode is somehow an hour long and I still don't really feel like I covered everything properly. Nuclear weapons and their, their impact on, on not just history, but, but current affairs is it's absolutely fascinating in, in, in a terrible, in a terrifying, in, an, in a morbid way. It is just a, a, an incredibly fascinating topic to think about. So I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope at least you've learned something from it. I mean, maybe, you know, you didn't load up this week's episode of half Ass History thinking you're going to get a really, really bad lesson on nuclear physics. But hey, look at that. I mean, you're, you're welcome, I guess. Um, but I want to close out, of course, the show with all the boring housekeeping stuff that's uh, coming your way right here, right now. Halfhourshistory.net uh, is the website. That's the place to find the contact form and links to old episodes as well as ways to support the show financially. You can buy merch. You can uh, sign up as a Patreon member of the uh, Half-Life History Patreon and gain all sorts of exclusive perks there. Early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes stuff, show notes, whatever else. You can go up there. And also, of course, exclusive Patreon merch that you'll get sent at no extra cost if you sign up. There's never been a better time to sign up to... Well, I mean, I guess it's... I guess it's technically true, but like it's been this as, as good for the last like couple of months. But t- technically speaking, there's never been a better time. I guess a better time for me was a couple of months ago because I'd already have some money off of you. So, ah, no time like the present. A different idiom to, to suit our purpose here. Go and sign up. And thank you to all the people who are supporting the show financially. You are wonderful incredible people with amazing taste in podcasts well actually i look maybe you don't even like the podcast that is irrelevant to me whether you do or don't like the podcast is relevant those dollars that's all i care about anyway thank you so much for listening as well for those of you who are uh, you know freeloading hey you're welcome thanks for hanging out thanks for sending in your, your listener suggestions topic suggestions and um i'm looking forward to having you in company next week for more half us history until then leaving you of course with a question posed on reddit this one comes to us from can you triforce who has got a potential solution for a big problem that's facing the world today. And like many uh, different people have proposed at various points throughout history, maybe the solution is just nukes. Why aren't we just detonating some nukes to get a nuclear winter and stop global warming? 